This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The church can defeat Hollywood in the culture war. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast contains reviews of three movies, all of which contain blasphemies that contradict truths expounded by the Catholic Church for centuries. In addition, the films contain depictions of indecency and violence, which are noted in the reviews. Parents may want to exclude children from listening to today's Return to Order moment. Complain about the nature and content of a movie, and someone's almost sure to complain, get over it, it's just a movie. That reaction emphasizes the fact that few people think about the effects of the movie industry on society. The movie industry's larger-than-life images take on a power all their own. It also trivializes real dangers. In Hollywood's make-believe world, all situations can be resolved in two hours. Hollywood is also a deeply-seated enemy of religion and morality. Since its very beginnings in the early 20th century, immorality has been its stock in trade. Those with upright consciences are made to look boring and silly. Those who break the rules appear daring and exciting. However, the movie's worst offenses have been against the church herself. When the industry blasphemes against the Holy Mother Church, the TFP has been quick to respond. Those responses have been effective. In several cases, that influence has cost Hollywood millions as films that were thought to be upcoming blockbusters fell flat at the box office. This podcast will examine three such cases. The first is the scandalous film Benendetta. In the fall of 2021, Mr. Luis Sergio Salomeo examined that film's many faults in his essay, Why the Movie Benendetta is Blasphemous and Anti-Catholic. Benedetta is an anti-Catholic and blasphemous film. Dutch filmmaker Paul Verhoeven claims the film is a portrayal of a historical event that supposedly happened in an Italian convent in the 17th century. The director, who is well known for his violent and erotic films, will insert in Benedetta scenes of nudity, lesbianism, and acts of blasphemy. The movie is, quote, Loosely adapted from Judith C. Brown's 1986 book, Immodest Acts, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy, unquote. The filmmaker recognizes that not all in his adaptation is true. Quote, It's true, mostly. I mean, of course, we changed a little bit, unquote. As for the facts narrated by Judith Brown, it is not clear if they involved a demonic possession, an erotic heresy, or something else. The facts involved in this case are usually the material for serious historians to study. However, it does not explain why the director is turning the case into a blasphemous and pornographic film. The filmmaker has an anti-Catholic agenda. He is a member of an association called Jesus Seminar which does not accept the divinity of our Lord, but considers Christ to be a simple, revolutionary man. A film critic comments on Benedetta, quote, The Dutch director takes upon himself to subvert some of the Christianity canon by presenting his vision of Jesus, often seen as a violent warrior who doesn't mind using a sword. 
The climax comes when the young protagonists, the two so-called nuns, turn a wooden Holy Mary statue into a sex toy to give each other pleasure. That scene was thought to tickle some hidden desires in the watchers, but it results in just free blasphemy. Unquote. In another interview, Verhoeven says, quote, Homosexuality is a part of life, so it should be part of our dramas. Unquote. Later on, he displays his Freudian conception of man. Quote, Sexuality is the most essential element of nature. Finally, he reports, I'm also going to make a movie based on my book about Jesus. Unquote. With this background, he does not have the conditions to understand the purity and chastity preached by the Catholic Church, the sublimity of religious life, or the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, he uses cinema to preach his erotic mystic religion. This filmmaker would certainly not dare to make a pornographic film involving Muhammad. Catholics must protest this ongoing campaign of blasphemies against the divinity of Jesus Christ, the purity of the Virgin Mary, and other outrageous attacks. Hollywood thought that they had a sure winner in the film Benendetta. After all, it had everything that they think America wants to see. Nakedness, immorality, and a chance to laugh at virtue. However, the film was a failure. Mr. Francis Sabotnik examines that failure in his essay, Protesters Mobilize Against Box Office Failure, Benendetta. The film Benedetta was released nationwide on December 3, 2021, during the holy season of Advent. Traditionally, the faithful prepare for the holy day of Christmas during Advent. However, one way of preparation has been a corresponding wave of protests to meet this blasphemous film. The American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP, and its America Needs Fatima campaign organized rosary rallies of reparation and protests in front of theaters everywhere. The dismal box office receipts prove that the anti-Catholic film is a spectacular failure. While blasphemous films are common, Benedetta sinks to new depths. It promotes immorality and full nudity in a religious setting. The sacred atmosphere of a Catholic convent serves as the setting for horrific sins of unnatural vice. This film is an insult to the consecrated religious over the centuries who have devoted their entire lives to serving our Lord by zealously obeying His commandments and by vowing to live according to the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. In addition, the media contributed to this scorn by favorably reviewing the film. One reviewer, Amy Nicholson of Film Week wrote, A very fun, very naked, and very blasphemous movie. Unquote. In hundreds of venues, members, supporters, and friends of the American TFP and America Needs Fatima were honored to mobilize to protest this insult to the Catholic faith. Wherever it appeared, the film was challenged. All over America, 
rallies of reparation put the soiled merchants of sacrilege and blasphemy on the defense. Once protesters started to appear, many theaters took measures to hide the film or minimize its showings. Some theaters did not place the name of the movie on their marquees. Others removed the film's title as a result of the negative publicity. Some ended the film's run early or canceled showings. At one location in Columbia, Missouri, protesters lined up outside a well-lit theater. The outside lighting helped illuminate the signs held by the protesters. As a result, passers-by honked in support. Eventually, the theater manager turned the lights off. At most rallies, protesters outnumbered those few who entered the theaters. In some cases, less than 10 viewers attended a showing. The box office receipts to date indicate the film was a financial failure. However, the producers of such films do not create these despicable films to make money. They do it to break down public morality and expand the boundaries of sacrilege and blasphemy. Each unopposed action on the part of evil pulls society further away from God and closer to the devil. The hundreds of rallies against Benedetta serve to console Our Lady and bring graces upon the nation. She saw those who loved her enough to brave the public scorn of the unrepentant wicked. It might also explain the abysmal failure of the film. The overwhelming number of positive reviews should have generated crowds. Instead, there was widespread support for the protest. This failure should give protesters confidence that their actions have consequences. That is all the more reason why Catholics must continue to offer reparation and defend our Lord, Our Lady, the Holy Catholic Church, and Catholic institutions. The protests against Benedetta were not unique. Over the years, the TFP has taken courageous stands against many sacrilegious films. In 2017, Mr. John Horvat wrote, Why Catholics cannot be silent about Scorsese's silence. In the history of the Church, many martyrs died for the faith. Starting with St. Stephen, the proto-martyr shortly after the resurrection, they were the first to be remembered, venerated for their public witness, and raised to the altars with the title of saint. There are also those who denied the faith under pressure. They are forgotten and buried in the dark recesses of history. The modern world has a problem with martyrs. People cannot understand the glory of their witness for Christ. Modern man would rather try to find some justification behind the anguished decision of those who deny the faith. Such is the case of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Silence. It is a tale about this second category of non-martyrs, of whom our Lord said, But he who shall deny me before men... I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. See St. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. Curiously, early reviews of silence have been negative, even by liberal media hostile to the church. 
The consensus is that Scorsese's attempt to propose for general admission one who outwardly denied the faith has fallen flat. Perhaps it is because human nature finds such denials distasteful. Even the director's talent, Hollywood special effects, and media publicity cannot overcome it. Scorsese's tortuous attempt to justify his tormented protagonist proves tedious and unconvincing. Silence is based on a 1966 novel of the same name by the Japanese author Shusako Endo. The plot revolves around the fictional character of a Portuguese Jesuit priest in 17th century Japan at the time of violent anti-Catholic persecution. The film represents a struggle of faith in which the priest must choose between the lives of his flock and his faith. In the face of his trials, he finds God is silent to his entreaties, hence the film's title. Finally, Christ himself supposedly breaks the silence by interiorly telling the priest that he might outwardly deny the faith by trampling upon his image to save his flock. Such a shallow story, so contrary to all Christian teaching, would normally pose no threat to Catholics who are firm in their faith. However, Hollywood has tragically assumed the role of a teaching authority to countless American Catholics. Thus, the principal lesson taught by the film, that outwardly denying the faith can sometimes be justified and even desired by God, does pose a danger to the many uncatechized that might mistake Hollywood script for scriptures. Any silence about silence might be construed as consent. Such films are nothing new. They are simply means to reinforce certain false premises that undermine the faith. It is far better to address the false premises themselves and especially as it applies to modernity's woeful misunderstanding of martyrdom. The first false premise is the modern assumption that life is the supreme value. It is a terrible premise, since if there are no values worth dying for, then there is no real reason worth living for. In a materialistic world that adores life and its enjoyment, martyrdom represents failure. Those who renounce the faith and martyrdom are winners. Those who don't are losers. The message of fictional accounts like silence is that life is to be worshipped to such an extent that even God must be made complicit in inspiring the apostasy that saves the lives of the faithful. However, such accounts are indeed fiction. They ignore the historical reality of what happened. The historic record of the Japanese martyrs is one of the most glorious in church history. It is a burning rebuke of modernity's idolization of life. Tens of thousands suffered or died at the hands of cruel executioners. If tales are needed to inspire authors... Let writers tell of the courage, heroism, and constancy of these Japanese martyrs, young and old, male and female, religious and secular, 
who joyfully gave their lives for Christ and earned for themselves the crown of eternal glory. If villains need to be found for their stories, let them find them in the cruel governors and judges who condemned the Christians to death. In 1776, St. Alphonsus de Liguori wrote the book The Victories of the Martyrs, which has one large section that tells incredible stories of the Japanese martyrs. He speaks of a Japanese Christian named Ursula, for example, who upon seeing her husband and two young children martyred cried out, Be thou praised, O my God, for having rendered me worthy to be present at this sacrifice. Now grant me the grace to have a share in their crown. Unquote. She and her youngest daughter were then beheaded. Indeed, any priest who would renounce his faith to save the lives of his flock would be reviled by the Japanese faithful for both his denial and depriving the flock of the crown of martyrdom. If there is any silence in Scorsese's silence, it is that silence which ignores the dauntless courage and supernatural joy found in the Japanese martyrs and missionaries whose witness was so superior that their enemies were defeated by their arguments and resorted to killing them. Their martyrdom was their victory, not their defeat. A second premise is that outward facts have no meaning. Such a premise is typical of postmodern thought that would deconstruct acts from their natural meaning and context. Thus, any benefit or inspiration can justify an act that signals the denial of the faith, since acts have no fixed meaning. Indeed, the theme of the film sounds the outward denial with the good intentions of the protagonist's concern for the safety of his flock. Again, this shows a profound misunderstanding of the idea of martyrdom. The word martyr itself means witness, an external manifestation of faith to others. The postmodern interpretation of the martyr's dilemma questions the notion that there can be witnesses that are so firmly convinced of the truths of the Catholic religion that they gladly suffer death rather than deny it. The meta-narrative of the great deeds of the martyrs is no longer valued. Even the idea of truth is relative. All must be reduced to the level of personal experience. Again, such an interpretation runs contrary to the historical reality that was centered on the notion of objective truth. Those who persecute the church hate this truth and the moral law taught by Christ and his church. They especially hate the public witness given by Christians because this witness denounces them for their sins and wickedness. All they asked of their victims was an outward sign of denial. For this reason, persecutors often preferred to force Christians to deny the faith than to take their lives. Historically, that is why those who persecute the church are always willing to offer honors, offices, and benefits to those who renounce the faith. They will always give Christians an excuse to stop being witnesses.
This includes those good intentions to diminish the sufferings of families, relatives, and fellow Christians. However, that is only a pretext. Indeed, what they want is to destroy the witness that haunts them and calls them to virtue. They want renegade Christians to make their denial public to discourage the witness of others. Thankfully, their efforts are often frustrated by the constancy of faithful Christians that moves others to conversion. They do not understand Tertullian's iconium that, quote, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church, unquote. The final false premise comes from a naturalistic understanding of the world in which people do not grasp how God works in souls. The secular world assumes God's natural position is one of silence. When secular writers are forced to imagine the action of God upon their characters, they portray it as a purely personal matter based on feelings and emotions inconsistent and outside the logic of divine law. This is perhaps the greatest misunderstanding of the faith. Modern authors create their own God of silence and believers outside of the life of grace. Such a combination leads to absurd characterizations like that of silence. Martyrdom cannot be based on emotion or feeling, since it involves surrendering man's greatest natural gift, life. This is something so difficult that it is beyond human strength to achieve. Martyrdom must entail grace, which enlightens the intellect and strengthens the will to allow Christians to do that which is beyond human nature. God's grace would never allow a person to deny Christ before men. That is why St. Alphonsus states that it is a matter of faith that, quote, Martyrs are indebted for their crown to the power of the grace which they receive from Jesus Christ. For he it is that gave them the strength to despise all the promises and all the threats of tyrants and to endure all the torments till they made an entire sacrifice of their lives. Unquote. St. Augustine further states that the merits of the martyrs lie in being the effects of God's grace and their cooperation with grace. In other words, God cannot be silent in the face of martyrdom as Scorsese's silence film affirms. His justice will not allow a person to be tempted beyond their capacity to resist. He is intimately involved in those facing martyrdom. He gives them grace, a created participation in divine life itself. Facing martyrdom without grace is impossible. While God may allow for trials, he is never silent. And that is why faithful Catholics cannot remain silent in the face of Scorsese's silence. Scorsese's film is a tragic denial of God's grace in a world in dire need of it. In these days when Catholics are being martyred, Catholics know that God is never silent. They will never be put in a situation where God betrays himself. 
He will always be there when needed. The secular worldview is so narrow-minded and asphyxiating, but alas, it is also prevalent. Today's obsession with self permeates the culture to the exclusion of God. It is little wonder that so many would think there is silence on the other side of martyrdom. It is largely because they find emptiness in their own lives. They cannot imagine the action of God and His grace. Amid the frenetic intemperance of the times, the agitated crowds ironically do not seek out God where He is always found, in the silence of their own souls. One fantastically successful campaign against a sacrilegious film occurred in 2006. The target was the film The Da Vinci Code. Like Benendetta, this film was expected to be a blockbuster. Instead, it was just a bust. Mr. John Horvath looked back on the successful protest in his 2007 essay, The Da Vinci Code, one year later. It seems like ages, but it was barely a year ago when the media hype was heralding The Da Vinci Code as the unstoppable and unforgettable film of 2006. Like the book that dominated the New York Times bestseller list for over two years, Sony's Columbia Pictures had high hopes for the movie. Marketers were already planning to spin off products to ride the wave. With champagne bottles ready, everything seemed set for the celebrations, except for one tiny dot on the distant horizon. That tiny dot was an unsettling controversy about the film which gradually spread all over the country. The book's blasphemous affirmations denying the divinity of Christ and claiming that he was married to St. Mary Magdalene and had children offended countless faithful. Numerous books and studies soon appeared that debunked these absurd and horrific theses, and others that author Dan Brown nevertheless affirmed were true. Sony Pictures tried to stem the growing uprising by hiring an expensive Hollywood public relations firm specializing in reputation management and another for dealing with troublesome Christians. Promoters spread ad nauseum the mantra that the film was only fiction and not to be taken seriously. Others sought to discourage protests by claiming that it would only add to the publicity and Sony's bottom line. Such efforts only seemed to add fuel to the fire. As the release day neared, many Catholics wanted to do more than just complain about the film's blasphemous content. Protests began to be organized. Voices started to be heard. Among these was a massive effort by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP, and its America Needs Fatima campaign. What began as a small effort to find a few local organizers soon mushroomed into a huge grassroots network of activists in all 50 states. This TFP network enjoyed an impressive outpouring of support from Americans from all walks of life. Everyone wanted to get involved. 
housewives, students, and professionals suddenly found themselves on the front line in today's culture war. People who never thought about defending publicly our Lord and the Blessed Mother suddenly were leading the charge and making a stand. Eleven American Catholic bishops eventually joined in encouraging such protests in front of theaters. Numerous priests denounced the film and announced the protests from the pulpit. By May 19, 2006, when The Da Vinci Code was released nationwide, the film was embroiled in a quagmire of controversy. The tiny dot on the horizon suddenly turned into a huge storm. Media was everywhere reporting on the protests. By the time it was all over, outraged Catholics had logged an impressive 2,092 protests across the nation. Protesters also organized over 1,000 holy hours of reparation on June 18th. On June 24th, activists gathered at the two Sony headquarters locations in New York and Los Angeles for a final opportunity to voice their outrage at the corporate entertainment giant's endorsement of blasphemy. What happened to the Da Vinci Code? With all the publicity, the film had all the momentum and hype to make it a blockbuster. In fact, the movie opened with plenty of fanfare and impressive opening weekend ticket sales. However, after the first weekend of protests, the climate radically changed. A curtain of silence fell over both the film and the protests. No one was talking about the Da Vinci Code anymore. And did the protests work? In the United States, where there were protests, the film's ticket sales fell flat. However, two-thirds of the receipts came from international markets where no protests were held. Negative publicity had its effect. The fact remains that the spin-off market of Da Vinci Code branded merchandise simply did not get off the ground. The book suddenly fell off the bestseller lists. The film was not even in the running for Hollywood Film Awards. Perhaps one of the greatest results of the protests was the sentiments of so many Catholics nationwide who experienced the joy of standing up for our Lord and Holy Mother Church in the secular public square. Since the release of the Da Vinci Code, things have also not gone well with Sony. And while one cannot link the bad fortunes of the corporate giant to the film, one cannot but take note that Sony has unexpectedly lost many times over any profit it might have gained from the film. Since the film's debut, the company has been plagued with a long litany of problems, infighting, delays, and mistakes. In fact, Sony has just posted its worst quarterly loss in four years to the tune of $583 million. In August of last year, Sony's lithium-ion batteries used in laptop computers mysteriously started catching fire. 
The company scrambled to control damage to its reputation and spent nearly $434 million on recalling and replacing the Sony batteries in 10 million laptops from Dell, Apple, Lenovo, and other companies. Sony has also been plagued by the marketing and developing of PlayStation 3, its new game console, which it had hoped would become its new cash cow. Factory delays, high production costs, and a bad marketing strategy have cut deeply into Sony's market share, which stood at 70% with the PlayStation 2. The new product now ranks third behind Nintendo's Wii, and Microsoft's Xbox 360. To remain competitive, Sony was forced to sell each new PlayStation 3 at a significant loss. As a result, Sony said the games lost $2 billion this year. To stay in the market, the film may have to introduce further price cuts for the game console that will hurt profits yet more. Even Sony's recent record blockbuster, Spider-Man 3, is not helping significantly to adjust its bottom line. Media reports say that production overruns, lavish spending, and lagging schedules have made it the most expensive film in the history of Hollywood, with cost estimates ranging from $270 million to $500 million. Thus, Higher box office receipts will not necessarily translate into higher profits. Looking back one year later, there is no doubt that things did not turn out as the film's promoters expected. The unforgettable film of 2006 has been forgotten. The unstoppable Da Vinci Code juggernaut has lost its steam. One cannot say that Sony's attachment to blasphemy was the cause of its unexpected financial woes, mysterious exploding batteries, and exasperating production delays. However, one can say that Sony's post-film fortunes have certainly not gone according to plan. In addition, 2,092 high-profile protests did send Sony a strong message that American Catholics do not take blasphemy lying down. On the part of Catholics, one can conclude that protests work. Standing up for the faith is something that makes one proud to be a Catholic and brings the blessings of God. It is an encouragement and proof in these times of moral relativism that one can make a difference. The protests also show that, if it can be done once, it can be done again. This concludes The Church Can Defeat Hollywood in the Culture War. Thank you for listening. The TFP remains committed to fighting blasphemy. Listeners are encouraged to contact the TFP National Headquarters in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania, when they hear or see blasphemies against the Holy Mother Church. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. 
The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.